welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to uh, our latest edition of our Arbitral Insights podcast series. And I'm delighted to have as our guest today, Sadaf Habib. Hello, Sadaf. Hi, Gautam. It's great to have you. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Sadaf is an independent arbitrator based in Dubai, and she's the founder of Equanimity Arbitration. Uh, She's qualified in New York and has been based in Dubai since 2009. She has many accolades to her name and has been repeatedly referred to as a rising star in the arbitration world, understandably so. Everyone's going to find out in this podcast exactly why that is. Um, I mentioned in my my introduction that Sadaf has been based in Dubai since 2009. And apart from working with a number of local firms there, she's also been sitting as an arbitrator in a very wide range of disputes. In 2020, Sadaf was recognized as one of Africa's 50 most promising young arbitration lawyers. And she's also been shortlisted for a number of awards in the arbitration world. And last but certainly not least, she is uh, very active in uh, the world of academia in international arbitration, and amongst other things, has served as an assistant editor for Africa for Kluwer Arbitration Blog and for the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators UAE Branch Committee. So it's really great to have you with us, Sadaf. As I say, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. You know, one of the things that I wanted to just start off on is to let our listeners know that we are going to be focusing on a very interesting and new topic for for us in this podcast series, and that's the concept of mindfulness and cultural sensitivity and awareness in international arbitration and why it's so important. And that's something where you are a thought leader, Sadaf, and we'll be focusing on that as well as a number of other issues. But before we get to that, I just wonder whether you can tell us all a little about your background, because you've got a very interesting background. You're New York qualified. You have a lot of experience in Africa and the Middle East. You're a Kenyan citizen. Uh, And so why don't you tell us a little bit about you, uh, your background, and why you chose arbitration or why arbitration chose you? Thank you so much, Gotham. And thank you so much for such a rich introduction. It's actually quite humbling when you hear all these uh, sort of <laughs> praises about yourself. And you're like, whoa. It's all justified, I can tell you. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and um, yeah, and actually, before I start out, I would just like to say you have a very nice, natural, smooth, flowing way of running these podcasts, which I really admire. It comes very, very naturally kind. to you. That's very kind of you. That's very kind of you. You're, you're making me blush, but thank you very much. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, like you said, I am I am a Kenyan citizen and uh, ethnicity wise, my roots go back to they go back to India, and I have been living in Dubai for about what 14 years now. So I actually I did my law in the UK, 
And uh, after I did the LPC, as with the many you know people at the time, you're looking for training contracts and send out thousands and thousands of applications and all that. But uh, I didn't get a training contract, which eventually worked out in my favor because then I ended up qualifying in New York. And for whatever reason, you know, that would have been, but it, um, I am where I am today. And at that time, I mean, as a, <laughs> as a recent graduate who um, had been working as a paralegal and I had been working part-time as a paralegal and I'd been promised um, a training contract, but that didn't happen. Now, if somebody would have told that girl that she's one day going to be working as an independent arbitrator, I would have dismissed it. I would have been like, that's not possible. You know, I had this, this track in my mind and obviously that changed. Now, uh, yeah, I grew up in, I grew up in Nairobi and it's, I mean, Kenya is Kenya. If you've ever been to Africa, it is, uh, it's an incredible place to experience. But like everything that happens in our lives, I mean, you sort of, you outgrow certain places and then you move on. And yeah, it's just, it's part of progress. And now I see Dubai as home. It's almost like you've, I've become multicultural in the sense that when people are like, where are you from? I'm like, yes, I'm from Kenya. I see Kenya as home, but I also see Dubai as home and I'm of Indian origin. So there you have it. Now, how did I end up in arbitration? Well, I um, actually started out as a... Um, corporate commercial lawyer when I came to Dubai and my work was yeah it was mostly transactional and then we ended up getting our first arbitration and I really liked what I liked about arbitration was that there's this there's this method of dispute resolution where parties can take their disputes through this mechanism and it is perceived to be faster and more cost efficient than going to court. And that, you can say, enchanted me about arbitration. So, yeah, I mean, I, I had my first flavor and it was a real estate dispute, I recall. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed writing the submissions. And that's when I was like, okay, this is it. This is what I want to focus on. I want to practice in international arbitration. And yeah, been doing that since then. Thank you for that setup. That's yeah. Well, you've clearly got a lot of multicultural uh, experience and knowledge your, of the world. You've worked in multiple places. You've got a lot of experiences, and I think we're going to come on, as I say, to the whole concept of mindfulness and cultural sensitivity. But just before we get into that, one of the other things I always like to ask our guests on this podcast series is to tell us a little bit about some of those people who've been influential in their career to date um, as mentors, as inspirations. Are there any people who particularly stand out to you who've been instrumental in you becoming who you are today? Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. I mean, we do, we do live in a society, in a community, and for sure, you, you are influenced and you look at people who have come before you and follow the same path. And I was actually reflecting on this the other day, and especially in terms of why I chose law as a career in particular. And I realized that I, um, I was very much inspired initially to become a women's rights lawyer and a human rights lawyer. And at that time, my inspiration was uh, Shireen Ibadi. She wrote this book, The Iran Awakening, and she's a Nobel Prize winner and a lawyer as well, and a judge. So at that time, she was my inspiration for choosing law as a career. And uh, obviously, with time, you know, you evolve and 
yeah in the world or and as you get a better understanding of the world in and of itself your inspirations change as well and if i look at um if i think about inspiration just in terms of life itself i tend to nowadays find inspiration from everyday people like this lady i met in singapore and uh, she start we had this conversation about faith and it was completely random and she was telling me about this book that she that she wrote and uh, she was selling bags made by women underprivileged women in a shopping center in singapore and i found that inspiring now if i go back to if i look at my career i would say that it's more it's been more about learning from practitioners and i am grateful of the practitioners that i've worked with to date i haven't had um, an official sort of you know mentor mentee relationship with a particular person or joined a you know a mentoring group of that in that sense where i'm a mentee but if i was to name a person i would say ahmed ibrahim and he is himself a successful independent arbitrator based in dubai in fact when i started uh, i worked with him while i was at fenic elliot and he's the one who encouraged me to sit as tribunal secretary and that i feel was pivotal because at that point i hadn't thought that oh yes i could look at you know an arbitration from the other side of the table by sitting as tribunal secretary i got that exposure and not only that i got the i got the confidence that i needed to when i so when i got my first appointment as arbitrator yes of course there were butterflies but i wasn't overwhelmed by the task i knew what i had to do so yes i'd say ahmed really encouraged me in that sense and he also encouraged me to think outside the box and he would always tell me pay attention to detail have an eagle eye yeah that's what he would say have an eagle eye so yeah he would be he would be the, the the person that comes to mind well that's amazing and you know and uh, we are all a product of those who've inspired us so you know that's clearly been very very valuable and important to you and which brings us to an area where you are very much uh, at the cutting edge of um thought leadership um which is the whole concept as i mentioned in the introduction of mindfulness and cultural sensitivity and awareness in international arbitration and why it's important and why it contributes to the success of the arbitration process so i wonder if you could just tell our listeners a, a little bit about your thoughts on this subject because i dare say it'll be a relatively new concept to many of our listeners absolutely gotham and i i started appreciating this more now as as i started practicing as as an independent arbitrator i mean if we just if we just pause to think about it and if we look at the players that are involved in an international arbitration dispute you obviously you have the you know the parties the claimant the respondent who are typically body corporates but who are being represented by the general counsel you have their external lawyers you might have qc's involved you have institutions involved you'll have you know then you have the arbitrators and you might even have a tribunal secretary but all these players what they have in common is obviously that there's a human element they're all humans we're not dealing with sort of well not yet dealing with sort of ai created systems or things like that we're actually dealing with humans and obviously with humans comes this 
entire baggage of preconceived perceptions and you know unconscious biases and all that is being thrown into the pot without actually us acknowledging that yes we're not operating in isolation we're more we're bringing in all these other factors unconsciously or even consciously into the mix and that influences how you know the dispute is run what sort of strategies come up the tactics and the reason i say that this particularly came for me into play when i started sitting as an arbitrator i guess it also it's also because in my personal practice i trained to be a yoga teacher and you know i did this health coaching course on the side and then i started realizing that you cannot uh, operate the two in isolation of each other you cannot say that okay yes i am going to be mindful when i'm on my yoga mat and then off my mat that just goes off you know out of the window and i started thinking how can these two and i work in international arbitration so how can these two mesh up and how can they complement each other and why don't we speak about it you know as much as we talk about we talk about diversity we talk about inclusion we're talking about all these things and we're making you know we're improving obviously we're moving ahead on these topics and we're the the leaps that are that are being achieved but i feel that the bottom issue actually comes down to this idea that we need to step back like really step back and ask ourselves you know what what are our beliefs what are when we have say for example you have a tribunal that consists of you know two men or one two men and one woman say for example now are there some sort of limiting beliefs that are in play where maybe when the female arbitrator makes a point she'll be dismissed and why will she be dismissed it's not just a question that she's being dismissed because she's a woman it could be that you know the male arbitrator who's doing this is doing this because that's what he saw growing up you know it could be so we need to it's not just a simple classification of uh, yes it's gender age ethnicity i feel that the the root of the problem is far deeper than that and it goes back to us really questioning ourselves in terms of what are our beliefs what have we adopted to be our beliefs when they could be, they could have nothing to do with what we think you know i mean and they a lot of times even they could be unconscious you're not even aware of it so that's why when i say mindfulness in arbitration i mean that we need to really we need to pause and we need to take a step back and obviously the way to do this is also you know through education and through creating awareness because a lot of times like i said people are not really aware i mean we're so we get so caught up in this cycle almost of delivery just constant delivery that are we really taking a step back we're advocating for diversity but what's the underlying issue you know what's the what's the actual core and i think that's what we need to we need to think about that's very interesting no thank you and i think you know what are some of the things that we can all do to really ensure that the process happens better is it a case of uh, institutions being more mindful of these things themselves encouraging awareness and training of arbitrators um should there be um you know th- things where people like yourself 
can be more visible to tell people what are the best practices for arbitrators because undoubtedly, as you'll know, there are arbitrators drawn from different generations and Mm -hmm. there are some very senior, well-established ones and there are obviously some absolute rising star ones like yourself. How do we ensure these issues get a lot more airtime amongst people who need to be aware of them? That's a very good question, actually. And so myself and uh, a colleague of mine in the in the international arbitration circle, Naini Bogosian. So we wrote an article for Kluwer Arbitration Blog, which was actually published a couple of days back. And in that, we discuss whether it's time for a code of conduct for arbitrators. Because as much as, so for example, in the UNCITRAL code of conduct for arbitrators, the draft code talks about civility in an arbitrator's conduct. And it defines civility as being polite and respectful when interacting with participants in the proceeding. But what we are saying in our article is that we need to actually, because of the different cultures involved and because of people coming from different backgrounds and different perspectives, we need to take this a step further and we need to actually define what sort of you know, what are examples of civil behavior? I feel like we're almost at that point where we yeah. need to go back and yeah. explain and be more you know, civil. Yeah. basic <laughs> concepts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> basic concepts like respect and civility. And just because, again, it's not to, it's again, no discredit to anyone, regardless of, you know, whatever age they might be in terms of their experience or their background. But it's just that, sometimes these things really need to, we need to like almost start from the ground going up. So what we're saying in this article is that let's have a code of conduct, which sets this out. And what you said about institutions is exactly what we say as well, in the sense that perhaps institutions, because they have power to appoint arbitrators, perhaps what they could do is adopt this code of conduct and get arbitrators to sign up to the code of conduct when they're accepting appointments. And in that way, it's almost like because when you sign up to something, you're almost like holding a part of you, at least, hopefully, is being held accountable to what you're signing up to. And say, for example, when we have the Declaration of Independence, the Statement of Independence that we sign as arbitrators when accepting an appointment, if we can refer to the Code of Conduct at that time and get arbitrators thinking about this and just bring it in front of them. So that's one way I would think that uh, we could create some sort of uh, accountability in a way. And perhaps even, you know, when you have, especially when you have a three-member tribunal, maybe have something in the institutional rules which allows, say, the chair of the tribunal where he or she sees that some sort of, you know, it's not, uh, basically the deliberations are, are, are not going the way they should because of, you know, these different perceptions and perhaps somebody's being more vocal, somebody's being less vocal or being dismissive of someone's opinions or whatever the case might be. Perhaps the chair can have power to bring that to the institution's attention. And, but again, it has to be, it's so tricky because it has to, it to then be on the institution to actually consider, you know, how much reality there is in the situation. So again, it can be tricky in that sense. Another way, what I would say is that we have all these courses on arbitration, but a lot of times all these courses are to do with the technical, the procedural and the substantive aspects of international arbitration. 
what we need to see is perhaps maybe a soft skills course on international arbitration, active listening, communication, discussion of unconscious biases, self-awareness practices. These are not something that, uh, I mean, even forget about ourselves as arbitration professionals, just as human beings, we need this. We need to incorporate the, these practices in our lives for our own you know, mental health, for our physical health. So how about we have even say an hour or two hours in say, for example, in an introduction to arbitration course to discuss these concepts and to explain how this would actually benefit you in practice. I think it would be beneficial. Absolutely. And, and, and I really agree with you. I mean, if, if everything you've said, I identify with completely. And our arbitration is a truly international thing. We all know that. The consumers of arbitration are from every country in, in the world. And we have many cultures. We have many different jurisdictions involved in arbitration. We have different levels of experience in arbitration. Some concepts in Western jurisdictions like voluminous documentary disclosure are not mm-hmm. things which other people in other jurisdictions are used to. And there are, there are common law traditions. There are civil law traditions. There are emerging economies. There are emerged economies. There are all sorts of things. And I think everything you've said is so important because I truly believe that those arbitrators who are more mindful, are more empathetic, more, more socially and culturally aware, will become more attractive as appointees to tribunals because, you know, people notice these things. And I, and mm-hmm. I completely, I mean, I just think it's great that you and others are really driving this debate because it's something we've just got to get closer to. So, um, no, thank you for that great explanation and for the uh, undeniable passion that you have for these concepts. It's fantastic. And can I ask you this? Actually, I should, I should have asked you this, Sada. Your, uh, with your arbitration practice is under the banner of equanimity arbitration. Can I ask you to just tell us a little bit about why you chose the name equanimity? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm intrigued and I'd really like to know. When I was um, when I was deciding, and I obviously I looked at you know what other how other independent arbitrators how they name their practice, and I saw that there is this pattern of naming your practice after your name, and a lot of people that I spoke to made that suggestion that yes you know you should name it after your name, but then I just felt that equanimity as um, as a philosophy it's a personal ethos of mine, and the meaning of equanimity is basically. It's actually what we're talking about in a way, because it's to step back and to look at the situation in a calm and relaxed manner. But it's that idea of stepping back. So you're not reacting immediately. You're not um, in a reactive mode and you're sort of making um, maintaining this equanimous state of mind when approaching the situation. And to me, Approaching an arbitration as an arbitrator, I would like to do that with that mindset, you know, because I feel that's a fair approach to the parties. And because that resonated with me as a personal practice, I decided to name my practice after that. It's um, it's unorthodox. I know I get asked a lot, but yeah, it is what it is. It resounded no, well, with no, me. Yeah. No, it's a great name. I, it's a great name. I, it, it certainly grabbed my attention when I first saw it. That's why I, I was just keen to ask you about it. And, and actually something that att- att- 
tangibly um, expresses your values is, is even more important. So thank you very much. Now, now um, we're approaching the last few minutes of our podcast, but I wanted to move to two final things, if I may. Now, one of the things that is, incre- is incredibly important in the world of international arbitration is greater and better diversity. Um, and diversity has many aspects, and you've already covered a few things in your discussion about mindfulness and awareness. But one of the things that's a constant battle, in my view, is not just getting more female arbitrators, getting more appointments, getting more visibility, more profile, but it's also arbitrators of South Asian origin like yourself, South Asian heritage and African heritage, getting them the profile, and by which I mean South Asian heritage and African heritage, female arbitrators. Now, how do we do that better? Is it a case of just making the institution sit up and take notice? Is it about giving people more opportunities for appointments? What more can we do to push the whole concept of diversity? There's so many things. I'm like, where do I begin? <laughs> yeah, it's a big well, question. It's a big question. It is a big question. But, you know, I mean, just a it's, couple of thoughts from you would be great. See, something that I have realized in terms of my own practice, because being, like you said, of South Asian heritage, what I really wanted to do was I wanted to get, uh, say, for example, I wanted to get appointments in India, which is true. I did want to get appointments from the Indian arbitration community. And I recall speaking to uh, an Indian lawyer and he, he he just told me flat out and he was like, yeah, but the tendency here is to appoint old Indian judges as arbitrators. And I was a bit like, OK, so if my own community <laughs> is putting that sort of you know, that sort of requirement, how do we now look at the wider community in terms of creating opportunities for South Asian female arbitrators? So it's, I would say a lot of it is obviously to do with creating awareness. And it's also about sponsoring each other, I would say, more than mentoring. It's about sponsoring each other. Because what I've seen a lot of times as well is that sometimes people get concerned that there's some sort of, you know, limit on the number of opportunities there are out there. But there really isn't. If we start thinking, if again, it's come to, it comes back to our mindset. If we think, of, if we have an abundance mindset and we see that, okay, somebody would really benefit from this opportunity and it would just help them to get that spotlight that they need in order to then work upwards, let's do that. I mean, you're not going to lose, if anything, you'll get back tenfold, you know? So it's a lot about changing your mindset. And on the flip side, it's also about the women who come from these groups. We need to stop looking at our race and our gender as a limiting factor because it isn't, you know? To begin with, like you said, international arbitration is international and we are international. So... That if we stop thinking about those as limiting factors and more look at it as, okay, it's an issue that needs to evolve and it is changing with time. And in order to play our part, we need to make sure that we are, first of all, not afraid to be seen, not afraid to be heard. Because a lot of times, especially as women, if you've grown up in those sort of households, you might have 
been told that, oh, you know, you need to behave in a certain way as a lady, which also means don't show off your achievements. But if we change our mindset and we're like, no, it really doesn't matter where I come from. This is what I've achieved. I need to share this with the international arbitration community in order for me to create opportunities for myself. So it works both ways. We cannot say that it's all about, you know, say one group of people and these women need to be supported in that way. No, it's also about the women creating opportunities for yourself, because ultimately that's that's what you need to do. You need to sort of forget about all these ideas of, you know, these limiting factors and just focus on your skills, you know, find the right people, network, tell people about who you are and, you know, what your achievements are and what your progress is like, what you want, ask for what you want. Because a lot of times that's another thing. We don't ask for what we want and we expect that it will come to us, but that's not how it works. Yeah. No, brilliant. I mean, I, I, I tell you, that's a, a very uplifting way. Uh, <laughs> you know, you've absolutely nailed it in my view with that. I, you know, I just think that was a brilliant response. And thank you for those fantastically uplifting thoughts. You know, now we come to the the last bit of our our podcast, which is always very popular with our listeners. And I, if you wouldn't mind indulging me in this last section, Sadaf, but um, I always like to ask our guests about some of their favorite things. So the first thing I was going to ask you was, have you got a favorite travel destination that you particularly enjoy going to? So I love Southeast Asia. And I think in particular, I would say Indonesia. But again, that is because last year when I left private practice, I decided to take time off and went uh, spent a month and a half in Indonesia, spent a month in Cambodia. So I love that region because of the blend of nature and culture and the food and the people. And I love trekking. So I went up Mount Rinjani. So that's the sort of, yeah, that's like my ideal so say Southeast Asia, I'm a fan of Nepal, Sri Lanka. It's all about the yeah. <laughs> heritage. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, it's lovely. No, no, fantastic places. <laughs> and is there a, a particular favorite type of music you've got or a favorite singer or group that you really, really love? Uh, so you're going to laugh. You're, you're probably going to laugh and the listeners <laughs> will as well. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have a favorite band, but I love... See, I, I love songs that I can sing along to, if that makes sense. It does. So I'm very much a, a car karaoke kind of person, and you know. Everyone Sophie. loves karaoke. It's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like Dancing Queen will come on and there you go. I'll be like rocking in my car, you know, that crazy person that you see on the side of the road. That's yeah. me. <laughs> well, no, that's, no, no, no. I think everyone likes songs you can sing along to because uh, it's all about the melody. Like, you know, let's face it. And the last one is, is there a favorite film that you have? So I would, uh, I don't watch a lot of TV, but I would say a favorite film, I do like musicals a lot. So maybe Mamma Mia, considering Dancing Queen, or, you know, The Greatest Showman. But my, if I can say my favorite book, if that's okay. Absolutely. I recently, Please. I recently read this. Um, I read this book by uh, Bronnie Ware, and it's the, the top five regrets of the dying. And I really, I think that everyone should read that. It's it's quite profound. So yeah, it's like two extremes. It's like Mamma mm. Mia, and then I'm telling you about this ominous book. But there you go. <laughs> no, <laughs> the let, paradoxes of life. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, it brings us back to one of the themes we've been talking about: diversity. 
It's mm. all about diversity. You know, you've got Apple on the one hand, you've got life's challenges. It's all about diversity in life. So, um, no, look, thank you, Sadaf. It's been an absolute delight to speak to you. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, it's been really incredibly, as I said, uplifting and thoughtful. And, uh, you know, thank you so much for your contributions. And I look forward to seeing you in person soon. And I wish you all continued success in your arbitrator practice. Thank you so much, Gotham. Thanks a lot for having me. This is very enjoyable. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the Reed Smith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, Search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on ReadSmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.